course, then they had a church at the end of it. But the San Giovanni Lateral Church is the first church of Rome, and they have a Latin inscription carved on the front, and it's, it's in Latin, but the translation says and means, most holy Lateran church, mother and mistress of all churches of the city and the world. So that's how they think about the Catholic Church. And uh, they are the authority for all Christians around the world. So, um, of course, Catholic folks lived in the Lateran palace until they moved to Vatican in the 14th century. Anybody have an idea of how many Catholics there are in the world? Throw a few numbers out there. Johan? Nope. More than that. Douglas? Uh, a little less. One more. A million, okay. 1.35 billion Catholics in the world. And if you if you break that down by numbers, now this, this comes from 2019. That was the last time they really did a complete census in the Catholic Church. But um, it, in 2019, the world population was 7.6 billion. So if you break that down, that is 17.7% of the world population claims to be Catholic. That is a huge, huge number. Um, so let me share a few statistics with you about Catholicism in the United States. I'm not trying to bore you with these things, but I think they're pretty interesting. Now, let me mention this. Since 1970, all of these numbers that, that I'm going to mention, and I actually have them up there so you can see them, but all of these numbers since 1970 have steadily declined. 1970 was, I wouldn't say that was the height of their power by any stretch, but uh, 1970 is when they really started keeping their statistics and everything else, and these numbers have steadily fallen since then. Um, and obviously, the U.S. population since 1970 has increased. So these are not percentages; these are actual numbers. And as the U.S. population has increased, these numbers have gone down. 16,703. This is as of 2021. 16,703 parishes, 35,513 priests, 41,357 nuns, 4,903 elementary schools. And you think about Catholic education here, there's 1,199 secondary schools, 3.9 million students that go through Catholic schools every year, or that were in, enrolled in Catholic schools in the United States. 225 colleges and universities, 512 Catholic hospitals, Last year alone, 545,710 infant baptisms. Now that's not their total baptisms. Their total baptisms are over a million, like 1.2 million in the United States. Total baptisms. But obviously a lot of them that they baptize would be infants and then of course children. Um, but 67.7 million people are on the Catholic world in the United States. Now that is according to their records. Here's something that's interesting, 72.7, that's another 5 million people identify as, or self-identify as Catholic. When you ask them what they are, they say they're Catholic, but 5 million of them are not even on the roll in the Catholic Church. Never been baptized, never done community, never been a part of the Catholic Church in any way. They just claim to be Catholic. Which, think about that, 5 million people, that's a lot of people that, you know, say they're Catholic, probably don't even have any idea what it means, right? Um, but this one was really interesting to me. 29.5 million former Catholics in the United States alive right now. 29.5 million of them raised Catholic but no longer identify as self, you know, self identify as Catholic. And then in, in, um, in, as, of, as of 2021, 4.4, um, uh, did I put the numbers? It should be 4.4 million converts to Catholic. 
2000, living in the United States right now, but it's not in 2021. But, but the thing that's, that's actually encouraging to me about that is, think about how many people have left and how many people they've gotten. That's a huge disparity in those numbers, right? 29 billion living in the United States that used to be Catholic, only 4.4 that have converted to Catholicism. Now, obviously, you think about the majority of Catholics don't necessarily convert, they grow up in it. So 500 and something thousand of them are baptized as babies and they just, you know, they never had to convert because that's what they always were. And, you know, so, but it's the fact that, that uh, you know, and you can look up racial statistics, but the good news to me is that all those numbers are dropping. And I, there's, I think there's several reasons for that. Part of it's because of all the scandals with the priests. Um, that really hurt the Catholic Church over the last five or ten years. Part of it is uh, that less and less people are interested in religion. And I'm sure there are other factors. But the best part of that is that the, the people are open to hearing and receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. 29 and a half billion used to be Catholics in aren't anymore. And I'm sure some of them became Mormons, some of them became Jehovah's Witnesses, some of them moved into all the different religions and things like that. But I'm sure there's a good number of them. We have a couple of them here tonight that, that used to be Catholic that, are, that have gotten saved, right? And have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And 29 million Americans have left Catholicism and they're turning to something. Why not let that something be the true gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Amen. 29 million. I mean, to me, that number is so high. Think about the opportunities that we have to reach people with the gospel who are looking for something because they know Catholicism is not it, right? Anybody ever been to a Catholic funeral or a Catholic wedding, any kind of Catholic church service? I've been to several of them now from different events, mostly with the police department stuff. The most boring, the most discouraging thing you've ever been a part of. And I'm telling you, it's so saddening to watch the people perform and think that they're doing something to earn their way to heaven. Right? And boy, I tell you, the last funeral I went to was at the big St. Michael's Catholic Church. And uh, one of the officers that had passed away, and there was a guy... I'm sure he was a member of that church, maybe even a deacon or something like that in that Catholic church. But they have sections where, and I don't participate when I when I go into those services. I know maybe it looks rude, but I, I, don't, I don't want any part of that. I'm, I'm there to, you know, to show the family that I'm supporting them and that I care about them and whatever else. I'm not participating in the service. And, um, you know, so anyway, different story for a different time. But there was a guy that was there, and there's, there's parts of the service where the priest says something and then the congregation says something and then the priest says something and then the congregation says something and then everybody sings and it, I mean these songs are so boring and slow and you know basically meaningless. There was one guy in there that was belting it out every time we sang was the loudest person. I mean there's a big, big auditorium, loudest person in the room when we were saying those things back and forth and I'm sure he was trying to let everybody know I'm a Catholic and I'm proud of it. It's just so sad that these people think that that is what's going to get them to heaven. But that obviously has nothing to do with it. So we're closing in on rounding out this long series on wolves and sheep's clothing. And I save this for close to last. I think what I'm going to do after we get done with this is touch on just a few. And I'm only going to take like one week per each one of those. If you know, if, if there's more than a couple. And I don't know if there will be or not. I haven't sat down and looked through them yet. But I, I think it will be helpful for us to look at things that are very close to but are not Christianity. And I think Catholicism is one of those. Um, but I saved this one for last because I'm going to try to expose the fraudulent teachings of the Catholic Church. And I want to do it in detail. 
And I want to make sure that we understand what is right about what we believe and what is wrong with what they believe. Because honestly, Catholicism is the largest group of people that we're going to deal with. Uh, you know, we go knocking on doors, and on average, I think probably every seven or eight times or more of knocking on doors, you come across somebody that's Mormon. Every seven or eight times of knocking on doors, you come across somebody that's Jehovah's Witness or, or any of these others. Almost every time we go out, somebody says, oh, I'm Catholic, right? So the, the next couple of months I'm going to spend on Wednesday nights talking about each one of these things. What is it like to think? probably heard about before and either just didn't know what they were, didn't know what they meant when the Catholic Church says these things or whatever else. But now that doesn't mean that I, that, I, that I do not or that we should not love Catholic people. In fact, the opposite is true. We love them. That's why we're trying to expose what's wrong with the Catholic Church. They're not they're not in Catholicism because they're trying to find something else, you know, a different way to heaven. They think they're doing the right thing. Uh, they're not doing it because they're, you know, they're so happy to be part of some cult somewhere that's, you know, pushing the boundaries of whatever. They're not there because of that. They're there because they think they're doing what's needed to get to heaven. And so we love them enough that we need to show them the truth. We need to expose the errors of the Catholic Church. We need to expose the errors of what's wrong with what they believe. So, uh, but I also believe that everybody in this church should have a firm understanding. There's a whole lot of things wrong with the Roman Catholic Church. So we're going to spend a couple weeks on it, a couple months on it probably, but tonight I'm going to give you just kind of a brief overview of the, the long history of the Catholic Church, and uh, and then just five minutes at the end of how it's structured today. There are volumes and volumes and volumes of history of the Roman Catholic Church. Right. And so to try to, to try to bring all that down into 25 minutes is skipping out on a lot of things that would probably be helpful to know, but I'm, I'm going to be brief, but just know there's a lot of things that I have to leave out. Next week, uh, next week what I want to do is talk about the Reformation and the Roman Counter-Reformation, and then talk about the true church that was still there during all of it, because Baptists are not Protestants. No. We were never part of the Roman Catholic Church. To be protesting against those things. Right. The Lutheran Church, a lot of these others were part of the Catholic Church, and they were trying to expose the errors and some things that were wrong with the Catholic Church. They didn't want the Catholic, they didn't want to separate from the Catholic Church. They wanted the Catholic Church to change. And so they protested things that were going on within the Catholic Church. The Baptists, and we can trace it back, were never part of the Protestant movement. Right. We were never part of the Catholic Church in the first place. Amen. I'm going to take all next week to talk about that, and maybe it's not 100% to do with the Catholic Church, even though it has a, it does have a lot to do with it, but I think it's very important for us to understand the difference between those two things. We'll get to that next week. So, first thing then is the formation of the Catholic Church. To understand the Catholic Church, we have to have some familiarity with church history. So, what happened to the churches since they were first founded by the apostles, right? We're going to trace the major events that led to the formation of the Roman Catholic Church, and then we're going to look at the that existed within and without the Catholic Church during its years of, of dominion in Europe. And from 500 AD to 1500 AD, it was called the Dark Ages, right? Middle Ages, there's, there's a couple different names for it, but it's because the Catholic Church had a stranglehold not just on religion, but on politics and on countries. We talk about how it got there. So most people 
um, designed by the Roman Catholic Church, and Jesus started the Roman Catholic Church, handed the keys to the front door to Peter, and then left. And that is, it's not nearly that simple. The Bible gives us an overview of church history up through almost 100 AD. Um, the true church was established by the Lord Jesus Christ about AD 33, and Matthew chapter 16 is really where that is established. Matthew chapter 16, verse number 18. Well, let's look at verse 17. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, we're going to talk about the Pope, and we're going to spend a week, one of these weeks, talking about the Pope. Uh, one of the things that they try to say is that Peter was the first Pope. Jesus gave him the keys. Now, he says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock. Now, when would you say this? And let's, let's break down a little bit of grammar here. Is he going to say, You're Peter, and upon this rock I'm going to build my church? No, you say this when it's something you're holding, right? When you say, when you're talking about something that's away from you, you say that. You're Peter, and upon that rock, I'm going to build this church. You're Peter, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Right? Words matter. Jesus Christ was not establishing Peter as the first pope. He was telling them that they were going to have power after he left and everything else. And, and we're going to look at some other verses. But you look at what happened later on in the New Testament, and some of the other verses that Jesus, or, or that, that Peter, Paul, and all these others mentioned, the apostle had the power. Right. Not Peter. Right. And of course, all of that was was revolving around the power that Jesus Christ gave him. So it's it's his institution. He's not the only, he's not he's not only the founder of the builder, he is the foundation and the chief cornerstone. Yeah. Right? We see that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. You can write those verses down and look them up later if you want to. Why would he say that he's gonna build the rock, you know, or build the church on Peter? And they called himself the chief cornerstone, called himself the foundation, right? Because he didn't make Peter the, the, the first pope. He didn't establish the church on Peter. He established the church on himself, the foundation, the chief cornerstone. So Lord Jesus Christ chose 12 men as his apostles, and it was through those men that he established the first churches, laid the doctrinal foundation for all future churches. And so uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 tells us that the apostles, not just Peter, this is the verse that I was referencing, were the foundation for the church. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read through those verses tonight, but you can go over there and look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 if you want to. But if the church does not have Jesus Christ as its founder and foundation, if it doesn't have the apostles as its teachers, and if it doesn't have the New Testament churches as its model, then it's not a true New Testament church. Right. And we can take a lot of time to talk about that, and that's a that's a packed full statement, and we're not going to take the time to do that. But if Peter is the foundation of not Christ, it's not a true church. Right. If the apostles' teaching is not what you're going off of, if you're going off of somebody's teaching later on after that, it's not a true church. Right? If, 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 if you're not using the New Testament church as the model, which as we're going to talk about later, the Catholic Church does not do that by any stretch, right. then it's not a true church. Right. So the church, the church grew very quickly in Jerusalem initially. And, and again, so 100 AD, we have all of this in the Bible. Now, we don't have every detail. Some of them have been, some of those details have been filled in by history um, and, and writings like Josephus and Eusebius and some of these other church 
writers who are, who are not apostles uh, and didn't write the word of God, but filled in some blanks in history for us during that time period. Uh, but persecution from the Sanhedrin, from Roman emperors like Nero, and Domitian, and Trajan, and Marcus Aurelius, and Diocletian, a lot of these others threw the church into upheaval. They started in Jerusalem, and went to Antioch, everything was going great, and then all of a sudden persecution started happening, and it just threw the church into this great upheaval. So the church spread throughout the entire Roman world that taking the gospel with it, which if you don't think that Jesus Christ came at the right time in history, then you don't know history. All roads lead to Rome, right? And so now, Roman persecution happened, and they spread throughout the entire world, which Rome was the entire world at that time. They spread throughout the entire known world, spreading the message of the gospel. If it had not been Rome, if it had been something else, it wouldn't have spread like that. It would have been a way for them to get around. They wouldn't have been Roman citizens. They wouldn't have had all these other things that they had. And look at how many times Paul got off the hook because he held up his Roman citizenship card, right? right. And they said, sorry, sir, please don't turn us in, you know, whatever. Just get out of here, right? It happened at the right time in history. God obviously knew what he was doing, but this spreading fire of the gospel was aggressively fanned by the apostles because they traveled all over the place. Look at Paul's missionary journey, right? Look at where Timothy traveled. Look at what John traveled. I mean, they, they traveled extensively. Go to Peter. And they wrote to teach and explain and to keep doctrine and churches in line. And we see that all the way throughout the New Testament. That's what those books were there for. First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. It was there to keep them doctrinally straight. So they started churches on synagogues. They reached out to the Gentiles, as we clearly see with the Apostle Paul and with those he influenced. But the Roman Empire had, had a very long and weary acquaintance with the Jews. Now, the Jews were known for their ethnic and religious isolation. They were, there were substantial pockets of Jews all the way throughout the, uh, the Roman Empire. And sometimes we separate the Bible and history. And we say, this is history, this is the Bible. But they go hand in hand. And so we kind of think of Judaism and Jews, and we kind of think of the Roman Empire and history. They were happening at the same time, right? Christianity and the early church and the Roman Empire were all happening at the same time. And sometimes we, we, we forget that. We separate the two. We say, this is the Bible. This is history. The Bible is history, right? right? It's right. his story. It's God's story, and it's his people. And so... Uh, at first, the Roman Empire confused Christians with Jews. They, they didn't realize that, that there was a difference between Jews and Christianity, and so it didn't take them too long to realize that the two were different. So why don't we see the same persecution of the Jews as we see of the Christians? Well, number one, they were not propagating this new religion of Christianity the same way that the Christians were, but the Jews had some built-in protections because they had been known for so long. And, for example, they were allowed to pass taxes instead of, instead of uh, offerings to the Roman gods. But monotheism bothered Rome. One God, monotheism, one God, bothered Rome. They, they believed that it was culturally dangerous, that it actually brought the wrath of the gods down on Rome, and so they didn't like that. And the official Roman Empire position on Christianity varied, really, with whoever was the empire, the emperor, but it was largely and very highly antagonistic toward Christianity. Thousands, and, and perhaps we can even say hundreds of thousands, uh, were killed in the first three centuries after Jesus Christ. You look at how these Roman emperors treated Christians, all the way up until about 400-ish 
maybe a little bit before that, uh, it, it kind of started changing, and we're going to talk about this, but it kind of started changing in the early 300s. But really, persecution didn't stop ever in the history of Christianity. It slowed down. It had different ebbs and flows, but from, from, from about 50 A.D. until about 350 A.D., there was massive persecution. And there's no way to tell how many were actually killed. Records are gone and everything like that. But hundreds of thousands, more than likely, of Christians were killed during that time. Uh, of course, the Ten Apostles were murdered. The early churches had to meet in the catacombs to keep from getting, uh, you know, caught and murdered. And so, it was said of Diocletian, he was one of the, probably one of the more ruthless, of course, Nero. And you've heard stories of Nero. Uh, it's, it's not an exaggeration to say that Nero was crazy. Um, but, but what he used to do is take the heads of these Christians, and in some cases, not even the heads, the bodies, the living bodies of Christians, put them on poles and cover them in pitch and then light them on fire and use it to light the streets in Rome while he would drive erratically in his, uh, his chariot throughout the streets. And just laughing about the fact that these Christians were lit on fire. And uh, that was not uncommon. Nero was, was more crazy than, than a lot of them were, but it was said about Diocletian. He ruled from 284 to 305. And this is this comes from Halley's Bible Handbook. It says this: the last imperial persecution, the most severe, coincident with the empire. For ten years, Christians were hunted. Should be hunted. Sorry, in caves and forests, they were burned, thrown to wild beasts, put to death by every torture cruelty could devise, with a resolute, determined, systematic effort to abolish the Christian name. That's what Christians faced. Now, from the Roman Empire perspective, persecution was logical, but it also backfired massively for, for them. It was, it was very counterproductive. And as much as I hope we never have to face that type of persecution, it would probably be the best thing that could ever happen to American Christianity. Um, not that the early church had gotten complacent, but what happened was they were happy in, in a large group in Jerusalem, and they were happy in a large group in Antioch. But as that persecution came, they had to flee to stay alive, and as they fled, Christianity spread everywhere. They took that message of the gospel with them everywhere they went, and it meant something to them. If you were going to say that you were a Christian, you better mean it, and you better live it, because you're going to die for it. And so you had people who were running around claiming to be Christians who were not just saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church every couple months. No, they were Christians and they lived it and they knew they were they better be ready to die for it. They were not afraid to say that. And so uh, the more the Roman Empire fought Christianity over the next few centuries, the bigger it got. Because the other side of that coin is uh, genuine belief attracts more genuinely, more people genuinely searching for the truth. And that's how so many of those people got saved. They said, man, these Christians must really have the truth. They're willing to die for it. They're willing to say they're a Christian knowing that they're going to get tortured, not just killed, tortured for the cross of Jesus Christ. There must be something to that. And so genuine belief attracts more genuine interest in people who are searching for the truth. But the bigger it got, the more influential it became. And as time passed, Rome, which itself was 
really facing a lot of political and military trouble, they started to seek accommodation with the, with the growing number of Christians. And honestly, this period kind of covers between about AD 300 and AD 500. Rome was losing its power. They knew they had to do something. And the weakened emperors started to reach out to Christianity. Christianity had become a large, powerful force. That's seen by the Edict of Toleration in 311 AD that was issued by Galerius that it made Christianity a legitimate religion. It didn't really do much for him other than that, but it made Christianity legitimate. Up to that point, they were nothing, and they were just this ragtag group, and if you were a Christian, then you were fighting against the religions of the day and everything else, and that's why they persecuted. This, with this Edict of Toleration in 311, made Christianity legal and made it legitimate. Well, they saw in Christianity now, instead of a threat, they saw it as a new power base. If we get these Christians on our side, then man, we can have a lot of power. So, a, a gradual apostasy from the apostolic teachings of the New Testament, the apostles, and the New Testament church order combined with the events within the Roman Empire really led to what became the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church. Now, we're not going to spend any time talking about the Greek Orthodox Church, but the Greek Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church are essentially the exact same thing. They're just in different regions of the world, is, is really what it comes down to. One of them is Roman, and one of them is Greek, obviously. Basically, the exact same founding and the exact same belief system, just slightly different things here and there. But how did this gradual apostasy happen? There's several reasons for that. Number one, there was a gradual change in church government. Uh, from the, the simple pattern that we see in the New Testament of autonomous local churches with their own leaders, pastors, assistant pastors, deacons, whoever else they had within that church, it began to rise the concept of this hierarchy of leaders with a very powerful uh, structure where you had very powerful bishops that started to rule over entire areas and groups of churches. You didn't find that. You don't find that in the New Testament. That is not how the New Testament church was established. It was established to be an autonomous local group of people that did their church business within their church and that was it, right? Second reason is that there was a joining of church and state. Again, we talked about that, we'll talk about it a little bit more. That's one of the problems. That's how apostasy came in. The church and the state joined together in these different things. You didn't see that. Number three, church worship gradually became elaborate and ritualistic with, quote, imposing ceremonies having all the outward splendor that had belonged to heathen temples. And isn't that exactly what the Catholic Church did, right? You look at the impressive architecture of a lot of these old buildings. And it was all about show. It was all about this, you know, this whatever you can do. And of course, even the ceremonies that we now within the Catholic Church, again, are all about that show, that ritualism. And a lot of that had its heathen founding and, and based on the, exactly what they did in these heathen temples. The fourth reason is that ministers became priests. Now, that term was not applied to Christian ministers before AD 200. Uh, they were called pastors, um, ministers, bishops, if you will. But that term, priest, was borrowed from Jewish worship and also from heathen priesthood. Again, as the church moved more into apostasy and further away from the teachings of the apostles, the more they married themselves to the world, the more they married themselves to heathen practices, and the more those practices took over in the church. Fifth reason is that eventually what happened is that new birth was not required to join the church. You didn't have to claim 
salvation. You didn't have the claim being born again. And it was this Christianizing of pagans that gave rise to the worship of Mary and so many of the other false doctrines that came to characterize Catholicism that we'll talk about later. The sixth reason is that there came to be five major centers of Christianity. And we're starting to see this split take place, if you will. Not even split, but a um, um, region that were under different uh, headship, who was also under a headship, who was also under a headship, and like the hierarchy structure that we start seeing uh, in the Catholic Church and the Jefferson Catholic Church today. This comes from Halley's Bible Handbook. By the end of the fourth century, the churches and bishops of Christendom had come to be largely dominated by five great centers Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria, whose bishops had come to be called patriarchs of equal authority with another, each having full control in his own province. Well, that's exactly what you see. So now you have five provinces with churches underneath them in all of those provinces, and the churches underneath them within those provinces. And that's exactly where you see this starting to shape up that one person is going to then take control of that. He's the Pope. Now, number seven reason was that the centers of authority gradually became Rome in the West and Constantinople in the East. So I'm going to say about that right now because we're going to talk about that in just a minute. The last reason is that Leo the First. Now he was he was in authority from 440 to 461. He became the first pope in Rome, and that was actually the initiation of the Roman Catholic Church. Now that's not what they necessarily consider their founding, but he declared himself to be a pope. Uh, Halley again says this: he proclaimed himself Lord of the whole church, advocated exclusive universal papacy said that resistance to his authority was a sure way to hell, and advocated the death penalty for heresy. That's exactly what the Catholic Church teaches today. So if the Catholic Church doesn't claim Leo I as the first pope, David Cloud says this, some identify Gregory I, whose reign was from 590-604, as the first pope rather than Leo. But we see in the claims of Leo I all the important characteristics of popery throughout the centuries. In profession and practice, Leo was definitely a Roman Catholic pope. Uh, and it's exactly so. So they don't say that. Um, and they don't even, a lot of times, they don't even claim Gregory I as the first pope because he was not declared a pope by the Catholic Church. But let's take a step back. So we just talked about the, the reasons for all that stuff, but now we need to take a step back and see how all that came about. And this is really where we see the Catholic Church starting to form its nucleus. Emperor Constantine, and maybe you've heard that name before, he's, he's historically been referred to as the first Christian emperor. No pictures of him. You see a bust of him. There's all kinds of different busts and mosaics and all kinds of things like that of Constantine that you can go and look up because obviously the Catholic Church is very much all about Constantine. Um, but he, he did a favor. Um, he, he favored the Christian church. He was not a Christian, but he favored the Christian church. Now, that was a change, because all the emperors up to Constantine had heavily persecuted, some even more heavily than others, and heavily persecuted the Christians uh, in that time. So some modern scholars actually debate whether Constantine uh, you know, even comprehended what Christianity was. But either way, he was friendly toward it, and he thought, hey, it's not a bad idea, you know, I, I kind of like your ideas, and so on. But he was responsible for the Edict of Milan, in 313 AD, which basically stated that people were supposed to treat Christians kindly. Remember, 311 was the Edict of Toleration. It made Christianity legitimate. Two years later, this 
edict of Milan said not only are they official as a religion, they're supposed to be treated kindly. If, if they had property taken from them because they were Christians, which happened, happened often, that property was supposed to be given back. Lots of things that went in favor of, of Christians. But he went into a civil war battle. This is this is making it very broad against uh, Maxentius, uh, one of the other Roman uh, generals, whose army was twice the size of Constantine's army. And this happened in 310 AD. So this is all right around the same time. Eusebius, which I mentioned earlier as a writer, a historical writer of that time, describes a vision that Constantine had while he was marching in the middle of the day. This is how he described it. He saw with his own eyes the trophy of a cross of light in the heavens above the sun and bearing the Latin inscription, in this sign thou shalt conquer. So it's a Latin inscription, but in Latin it means in this sign thou shalt conquer. Well, that sign was in uh, Constantine's head. According to Eusebius, Constantine had a dream that same night. Uh, Christ appeared to him with the same heavenly sign, told him to make it that the army standard in the form of a laborer. And so he describes the sign as, oh man, I forget how to pronounce it, Kiro. It's not Kiro. It looks like that, but it's actually Kiro. Kiro. And it stands for the first two letters of Christos, which is Jesus Christ. The Kai is the X, and the Ro is that T looking thing in the middle. Well, what ended up happening then is, in this sign, thou shalt conquer. That's the sign he saw. It's the sign of Jesus Christ. And so, he went back and told all of the soldiers in his army to put this sign on their shield. He put it on his helmet. They had that sign all over everything. Went out the next day, and they defeated an army twice their size. And of course, then he gave all the credit to this dream that he had, this vision that he had. He gave all the credit to Jesus Christ, because in this sign, Christos, thou shalt conquer. And so uh, they won the battle. He gave the credit. He became an avowed Christian after that, was baptized. In, the, in their church and everything else by a bishop in uh, AD 13. So by 313, Constantine, Constantine had become the first emperor to stop the persecution of Christians and legalize Christianity. And that may sound good. A lot of people uh, became Christians because that was the official religion. Everybody became a Christian. Obviously, that was not a good thing because everybody became a Christian because it was the official religion. They didn't mean it. They didn't know what it meant. But I'm a Christian, because that's the official religion, right? So, Constantine financed a lot of church buildings, granted privileges to clergy, he promoted Christians into high office and all that stuff. But at the same time, he was doing the same thing with other religions. So, that's where a lot of people question, you know, he, he almost certainly saw Christianity as just one of many religions uh, or gods that he wanted to encourage or placate. So, soon after that, he built Constantinople, on the Greek city of Byzantium, that became the center of authority in the east. Then came the Edict of Thessalonica. In a disintegrating empire, Theodosius, who actually was the emperor and only 23 years old at the time, fell ill, and he needed something as a way to get well. And so, um, on February the 27th of 380 AD, he, he was born into the faith as a Christian. Now, this is 313 when Constantine establishes this Edict of Milan. We're in 380 now, so this has been a, a few years, same decade. He had, he had been recently baptized, but after a serious illness and, and, a, and wanted to get better, he issued the Edict of Thessalonica. The Edict 
Nika said that it, it threatened divine punishment and imperial retribution for the people who rejected the Nicene Creed. Now, the Nicene Creed is what we know as Christianity, essentially. So it made Nicene Christianity the official state religion of the Roman Empire and basically said that all of their subjects should profess the faith of the bishops of Rome and Alexandria. If you didn't profess this faith, then not only were you subject to divine punishment, you were going to spend eternity in hell and all these other divine punishments, you were punished by the Roman Empire for not being a Christian. So we see the whole scenario is flipped now. Now anybody that wasn't Christian was, was punished. So guess what happened? Everybody became a Christian, right? And it meant nothing to them. Essentially, it established the state church, uh, Christianity as the state church, as the state religion. So in the next century, Rome fell. Literally, they, they, the, the, the uh, nation of Rome fell apart. So the city of Rome itself was, was repeatedly sacked and burned by the Goths and the the Vandals, what was left of the Roman Empire became centered in the East in Constantinople. Christianity was still the official state religion of the Roman Empire, but the emperor had left Rome and he was never coming back. So what happened? Now, that means that the most important person in the Roman Empire that was left in Rome was the appointed leader of Roman Christianity, which was the Pope. Now, the Pope has all the power, not only religiously, but politically. The emperor is gone. He's not coming back. If he does, he's going to be killed. So now the Roman Pope is the most powerful man really in the world at that time. But over time, the Pope became the leader of the European religion, became the leader of, of, of European civilization. And what happened is that this disastrous mix of paganism, empire, and Christianity produced a church that considers and still considers itself to be the sole representation of legitimate historical Christianity, still considers, it, considers itself as having the religious authority of Peter, still considers itself as having the political authority of Rome. So, all-powerful. And this is leading up to, this is 380 and going into the 400s, this is leading up to 500 AD, which was when the world was plunged into darkness because not only did Roman Catholic Church have all the political power, they had all the spiritual power. And this is the part that we have to cut so much out, and we're actually, I'm, I'm done with the history. That is where the Roman Catholic Church started. But what ended up happening is the Roman Church had so much power that they could make any nation, any country do anything it wanted to do by saying, fine, you're going to be excommunicated and you don't do what we say. Well, excommunication means you're going to spend an eternity in hell. Who wants to spend an eternity in hell for that doing what the Pope said? So nations were moved by the Catholic Church. And that's exactly why from 500 to 1500, the world was plunged into this darkness because the Catholic Church had a stranglehold on everything. It wasn't until 1517. What happened in 1517? Luther. Martin Luther, right? He nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation started. And even though we know agree with the Protestant Reformation 100%. It's what moved us out of that Catholic Church dark age. It allowed the, the true church to kind of emerge from the shadows, if you will, and have, have a lot more freedom. Now, there was a precursor to that. What happened before the Protestant Reformation that changed everything? Anybody know? It was an invention. 
pretty perfect. Printing press was invented by Johann Gutenberg, and that made it so that people could actually get printed material in their language. And honestly, that's what happened with the, uh, the Bible started to be printed. People actually started to read the Bible for themselves, and they started to realize that the Catholic Church had been lying to them all along, and now they know the truth. And that's where Martin Luther was able to say, the Bible says, Amen. what? The just shall live by faith, right? The just shall live by faith. That was what he kept going back to. The just shall live by faith. That's what the Bible says. It doesn't say we're going to do all these things, right? They went about it the wrong way. Instead of making a point with the Catholic Church, they tried to make amends with the Catholic Church. And they protested the stuff that the Catholic Church was doing from the inside. They never left the Catholic Church. And that's, that's where you end up with a lot of these religions that have come as a result of that. that Really resemble a lot of what the Catholic Church does. Right. They still baptize babies, they still sprinkle for, for baptism, they still do all those things because they never really left the Catholic Church. They just protested and changed a few things. And that's what we're going to talk about when we get together next week. Let me give you two minutes on the structure, and we're done. Roman Catholic Church has a top down, highly authoritarian, uh, authoritarian style of church government because it, it has in its DNA state religion. We are everything, right? Uh, of the Roman Empire claims that the Pope is a direct descendant of Peter's apostolic authority, so we have all authority. You can't tell us what to do. Our authority comes directly from Peter. It doesn't, but that's what they say. We're going to talk about that a little bit later as well. But over the next 1,500 years, Roman Catholic Church added all kinds of aspects to itself, like monasteries and orders and schools and all of these other things that, that really just cemented its place and, and established it as as a religious powerhouse, if you will, but being usually the official state religion of whatever country was exploring and uh, settling different areas, the Catholic missionaries came in as part and parcel of colonialism. So wherever people went to establish new areas, the Catholic Church went with it, and so it just spread around the entire world. And that caused it to expand far beyond the original boundaries of the Roman Empire, and Europe, the Mediterranean, moved into South America, North America, Asia, which, by the way, the Catholic Church has lost most of its power in Europe, which is where it started. And uh, I mean, it's still very, very popular around the world, and, and actually in some areas it's even getting more of a stranglehold, but where its original base was in Europe, it's, it's lost the most. Um, but along the way, it split itself in half along the lines of the old Roman Empire split, Roman Constantinople, and that's where you get the Greek Orthodox and Roman Catholic and all of those things. Uh, along the way, it battled the, the rising tide of Islam, uh, put that down. It, it battled the uh, different other religions that popped up that became increasingly corrupt, and became increasingly um, apostate in its doctrine. And along the way, it lost half of Europe to the Protestant Reformation, which is what we're going to talk about next week. Protestant Reformation had a huge impact in releasing the stranglehold that the Catholic Church had on the world. And uh, like I mentioned, you have the, the Reformation, and then you have the Counter-Reformation by Rome. And that was their attempt to, to kind of tighten the script back up. But then all the way throughout that whole time, there was still a true church. There was still a church, right? God promised. God promised that his word was going to be preserved forever. He promised that there was going to be those that are faithful all the way throughout the whole time. The true church never died. It went underground, 
because they were afraid that they were going to die, but they were still propagating the gospel. They were still faithfully preaching the gospel. They were still faithfully following the word of God. And boy, that's a that's a whole other topic for a whole different series of lessons on the Bible. Right. How the Bible made it from the apostles to today. Right. It is an amazing story. Right? But that's for a different day. Next week we're going to talk about the Protestant Reformation, the Roman Catholic Reformation, and then where was the true church in all of this? We get into some study. So come back next week. Right? Like the Sunday school teachers always used to tell you, they get you to the point of the story where they're like, and the next thing that happened was, come back next week. And the person's like, I'm going to be here next week anyway, just tell me. Right? <laughs> but Father, I love you. Here we thank you so much for how good you are to us. Thank you for the opportunity, as we always, as we always thank you for the opportunity we have to have the truth of the Word of God. May you help us to stand strong on it. And again, that we do everything we can to share the message of the gospel. Thank you for all you do for us, Jesus. Amen. Amen.